0: Take your Bible, join me in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. We're going to make it into chapter 13 today. And today we are going to look at a less than shining moment in the life of our protagonist in this stretch of Genesis, which is the patriarch Abraham. We're going to see failure in his life. How many of you have ever failed? You've ever failed. How many of you have, I mean, you've really failed. I mean, you've done a face plant. How many of you have ever done this in front of a lot of people? I've done it. I'm reminded of my most recent occasion at the daddy-daughter dance last night. (laughs) Ah, some of us are on Facebook, yes, and Instagram. Dear Lord, how many platforms is this on? There was a dance-off. They like to do this at the daddy-daughter dance. They do a dance-off with the daddies, there are two lessons that I learned last night. One is never follow Pastor Lidio in a dance-off. The second lesson is never participate in a dance-off. My backspin ain't what it used to be, and it wasn't ever very good. Somebody came up to me today, they saw the video online, they're like, I didn't know you could bust a move. I said, well, I busted something. I don't know if it was a move. But we're going to see failure, and we're going to see failure not just in in an embarrassing moment. We're going to see a failure uh, of someone who has been elevated, someone who has been appointed, someone who is acknowledged as a leader. I know stuff about that, too. Uh, The first leadership opportunity that I ever had, I had in my 20s, so this is years ago. I worked, I think I've shared with you, I worked for a missions organization. This is how I met my wife. And we traveled around in the States on behalf of a missions organization raising awareness, raising funds for various ministries, the the sponsorship of orphans, the printing of Bibles, the planting of churches. And so we would travel around as a vocal group. We would do concerts and raise money for all of this sort of thing. And uh, the second year that I did this, our director and his wife were expecting, and so they had to come off the road. And so the organization promoted me to be team director. And so my job was to run interference with these various churches and to kind of oversee our operation and our team and lead them and whatnot, and uh, make sure that they were all taken care of. And that meant securing host homes if we were at the church for them, uh, and if we didn't have a church, to make sure that they had a roof over their head. And so we would travel around. And we had a 45-foot bus that we traveled in. And there were three drivers, I was one, This bus was the bane of my existence, and I let my CDL expire years ago. I have no intention of ever getting it back. And we would find ourselves periodically on tour, and we might have a concert drop out. We might have a church cancel on us, in which case I'd have to book a hotel for them or something. And then we'd have some downtime. And so I recall being in Northern California uh, one such week, and a church bailed, and so we had some downtime. Whenever we would have downtime... It was always fun, depending on where we were, uh, to go sightseeing. And so we were near San Francisco, and a lot of our team members had never been to San Francisco. I had never been to San Francisco at the time. We thought it might be fun going to the city, check it out, you know. And we we, we even bought tickets to hop on a boat and go out to Alcatraz and take a tour of Alcatraz. One problem, 45-foot bus. You don't take a 45-foot bus into downtown San Francisco. And so I thought, okay, okay, I'm going to call a friend of mine. I had a buddy who was working at a church up in Northern California, and he said, no problem, I'll, I'm going to go with you guys. I'll get a church van, and uh, you, can, you can follow me toward the city. We'll get off at some exit, find a place to leave your bus for the day. I said, that sounds like a plan. So that's what we did, and I'm driving the bus. I'm following my friend in the van. We get off at every exit. There's nowhere to leave this bus. And the last stop before the bridge is in Oakland, California. And I'm driving this this beast through the streets of Oakland. The streets of Oakland are like that big. And I'm I'm driving this thing just, you know, afraid I'm going to take out a parked car, a mailbox, a stop sign, what have you. And the clock is ticking down, man. We're going to miss our boat if we don't find a place to leave this monster. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a parking lot, an empty parking lot. It's a hot dog joint called Casper's. This place is a dive. I mean, there's nobody there. And so, as the leader, I make an executive decision. This is a good idea, I think. I'm going to whip this bus in there and park, and we're just going to leave it there. So I pull in along the back fence, take up like, you know, 10 spaces. There might have been some signs that say, you know, customer parking only. But I rationalized it. I'm thinking, who's to say? that we're not customers. We might come back from San Francisco in the mood for a hot dog, you know? And so I leave this bus there and I hop off the bus and I get on this van and we, we go to, to, to the bay, man, and I mean, we hit, we hit Alcatraz and we did Pier 39, Fisherman's Wharf, we tour the Ghirardelli, Chocolate Factory, we ride the trolley, all the things, had a great day. At the end of the day, we're in the van, we're laughing, we're on our way back, to Casper's to pick up the bus. And one of the team members said, Hey, wouldn't it be crazy if we got there and the bus was gone? <laughs> and we're all laughing. I go, Yeah, what, yeah, what are they going to do? Tow a 45 foot bus? <laughs> they towed my bus. We pull in that parking lot. It's like a little bus rapture happened. Somebody goes, the bus is gone. I felt all the blood drain from my face. This is my first week as leader, okay? I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So I I get out of the van. I go and I I, I knock on the door. It's closed. Casper's is closed. There's a guy in there pushing a mop. I say, hello, hello? And the guy goes, we're closed. I said, Where's the bus? He goes, it got towed. I go, yeah, I know. Where? And so he writes it down on a piece of paper, slips it under the door. Name of the tow yard. We go to the tow yard. Tow yard's closed. There's a number on the door. I call the number. Gruff voice answers the phone. Hello? And I I go, hi, uh, Yeah, I have a bus. He goes, all right, yeah, I'll be down there in a minute. So he comes down, lets me in. And he gets on his little computer, and he goes, all right, looks like it's going to be 400 bucks. Now, I'm thinking, I have to pay for this myself. I'm willing to pay for it myself with my credit card, my personal card, if it means that I don't have to call my boss and tell him what happened. And so that was the exact uh, limit on my credit card. And I'm like, "Okay, okay, all right. He goes, I'll be right back. So he leaves the room. Another guy comes in. He goes, you the guy of the bus? I go, <laughs> yeah. He goes, did uh, he tell you what the cost was, what the total was? I said, yeah, four four hundred bucks. He goes, that's not right. I go, oh please let it be less, please let it be less. He gets on there. He goes, yeah, no, here's what happened. We uh, we had to get a bigger truck because it's a bus. You can't tow a bus with a regular truck. So and we had to put it in neutral, and your bus was locked, so we had to hire a locksmith. So it was over eight hundred dollars. It might as well have been a million dollars. I didn't have it, which meant I had to call my boss in Virginia. It was 9 p.m. on the West Coast. So I had to wake up my boss. He's like in a panic because he's getting a call from me in the middle of the night. He's says, Scott, what's wrong? what's wrong? Everything okay? I go, it's the bus. What? What happened? Where are you? I'm in San Francisco. Did it roll off the end of the pier? No. <laughs> no. You know. But this, I never lived this down. This was my my failure in leadership. Well, today you're going to see a leader fail. You're going to see a patriarch fail. This is a guy God has chosen to be the progenitor of a new people. He has encountered God personally. God has manifested to him on multiple occasions. He has received direct revelation from God. But there's a problem. And he is going to fail here, and he's going to fail miserably. And what you need to understand about Abram and Sarai, God has promised them you're going to spawn a new nation. They don't have their son Isaac until 25 years after that promise. Why did it take 25 years? Is God trying to gear up the strength to make it happen? No, he doesn't have any problem with that. He can bring forth a baby from a barren womb like that. He's God. Isaac, their son, is not the problem Abram is the problem. God takes 25 years to mold and shape Abram into the man that he needs to be. And he's going to use failure. Because in your notes, our big thought here is that failure is a primary tool that God uses to shape us. To shape us. See, failure in the context of God's sovereignty has benefits, JFK said, success has many fathers, failure is an orphan. Nobody claims failure, and yet failure produces more godly uh, qualities than a 100 successes. You can le- learn more. Your sound theology can result from failure more than it can from a 100 semester hours at seminary. When you fail, believer, it begins to wean you off of obsolete resources that you are relying on. Uh, If you are relying on personality, on talent, on ability, on reputation, on social status, all of those things, when you get hit with a real spiritual battle, you're going to discover those things are not enough. They don't cut it. They don't cut it. They could complement your spiritual life, but they are nothing that you are to found your life on. Your victory comes from the exchanged life. When you say, not I, but Christ. Really, isn't this the beginning of salvation? When you come by faith, you are admitting that you're a failure. If there's nothing that you can accomplish, you can't earn the favor of God. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not some things. Not you get lucky every now and again. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We've all heard that. We know that. We quote that. And yet, for some reason, it doesn't become real until we fail. Until we fail. Failure is the greatest teacher that you have. In Romans 7, Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. And so we're gonna see that applied today in the life of Abram. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? I ask your blessing upon our time and your word today, God, and may we look at Abram and be encouraged. Because if the man that God chose to be the very first in a line that's gonna lead to Christ, if he can fail, then that should be an encouragement to the rest of us. If you could still use him, even though he goes down in flames on occasion, then you can use us. And so we expect to take great encouragement from this message today. Speak to us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us now look at, in your notes, the progression of failing faithfully. Not just failing but failing faithfully. Let's watch Abram learn. This is the way his failure takes shape. He doesn't just immediately flop. There is a sequence here. There's a weakening, and then there's an erosion, and then he just goes down face first. Look at verse 10. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abram is up in Canaan, He's coming off of some divine appearances of the Lord, some direct revelation, and now he encounters the biggest problem, the biggest challenge to the life of faith. What is the biggest challenge to the life of faith? It's not opposition. It's not opposition. You know what it is? is? This is the first thing that we encounter. In your notes, unbelief. Unbelief. Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That the life of a believer is challenged by unbelief, and yet it happens. Why? The passage of time. The passage of time. Abram is faced with a famine. You don't just wake up to a famine. A famine takes time to develop. takes years to set in. So during the years following his call up in Mesopotamia, the, the, the initial rush of adrenaline has fallen off, okay? We don't read about any uh, additional revelations from God, any divine appearances since that time. And so what's Abram got to do? He's got to walk by faith. And we all have to do that. A brand new Christian is a very excited, vibrant person. And over time, they don't have that initial rush, the emotional experience of it all. It was a legitimate coming to faith, but there was a lot of emotion at the beginning. We can't be sustained by emotion. And so what do we have to do? We got to learn to walk by faith. And so Abram heard God promise great future, spiritual outcomes, land, seed, blessing. We went through all of that last week. And it's going to be for all the world. Does he believe that God's going to follow through on all that? Yes. Those are 30,000 foot things that God has promised. He believes in those. What's he struggle with? The right now, the little, the small, the day to day. He has trouble believing that God will provide him sustenance, food, He's in a famine. And so his consistent walk has not been fully established. He believes God. He's been justified. He's been declared righteous. But now he's got to learn to walk. And that's what we got to do. And, and as Christians who are born again, we, we can have the right theology. We believe all the big stuff. We got our doctrines straight. You know, you believe that, that, uh, that a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit, that she gave birth to the God-man... God incarnate and he grew up, he lived a perfect life, he performed miracles, he walked on water, healed the sick, fed the hungry, raised the dead. We believe that he went to a cross, that he paid a price that only he could pay as the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world away. And we believe his body was put in a tomb, he died physically, but three days later he rose physically physically. And appeared to many people. We believe that he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. We believe that he has since sent his spirit to come and indwell every believer who comes by faith. We can believe all of that. We can believe that he's coming back. And yet we can struggle with the daily stuff. We believe in the God of the big things. But we have trouble with the God of the small things. You can buy all of that theology that I just talked about. You can hear me talk about it on this platform and say, Amen! And you can have a victorious life right here, right now. And then between here and your car, you walk out there, you get in a fight with your spouse. You get in the car, your your kids become demon-possessed and start fighting each other. I'm speaking figuratively, just so you know. And your life is chaos, and you don't know what to do with it. You try to handle it your own way. And this is what we do. Our theology doesn't get tested when we take a Bible quiz or take copious notes in a sermon, our theology gets tested when we get in a fight with our spouse, when, when our car doesn't start, when we lose our job. All of these trials of love, when our bills pile up, okay? Abraham has not grown into his theology. He knew what he believed, but he hasn't grown into it in terms of his daily application. And, and people have to come to grips with that. We all have a journey where this hits us in the face, Whenever I officiate at a wedding, I look at the groom, I look at the bride, you know, they're, they're both in la-la land, they're looking at each other, they're, they're just lovey-dovey, and I'm looking at them, I'm going, <laughs> you have no idea what's coming. Oh, it's worth it, it's a wonderful thing, but it ain't going to be like this every day. And so you're going to have to grow into your theology. Walking with God is not a problem-free environment. We we can have peace, but peace is not the absence of problems. Is that true? It's knowing Christ in the midst of the problems. And so Abram's first problem is not understanding the transcendence of God, it's understanding the imminence of God. That he will provide, that he will meet your every need every day. That's the God who gives land and seed and blessing. He can also come in and provide the small things. But Abram's bent is not to trust God in the small things. Abram, even though he's going to fail here, he is not a failure at first. He's not regarded as a failure. He comes from Ur of the Chaldees. That's a land that's very affluent. Abram comes from money. His father was a self-starter, entrepreneur. Uh, The last place he was in Mesopotamia was called Haran, which is named after his own brother. So they are an affluent, industrious family. And the tendency with such people, even in circles of faith, is that when a problem comes, you deal with it out of your own well of knowledge and ingenuity. And that's what Abram does. So the first problem is unbelief. I don't believe God can meet this need. And that leads us to your second problem in this progression, in your notes, self-focus. Unbelief leads to self-focus. Now, there are different ways this is going to manifest. Look at verse 11. It says, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And then they will kill me. But they will let you live. I've got it, he says. Verse 13, Say you are my sister, (laughs) that it may go well with me because of you that my life may be spared for your sake well isn't that heroic ladies have you just longed for a guy like that you know he's just so consumed with his own self-preservation he's willing to put you at risk that just warms your heart hey baby i got it let's tell him you're my sister that's how we'll do this and in his mind, he's rationalized. He's thinking, this is a great plan, you know. We got famine back at Canaan. We need food. They got food here in Egypt. Problem is, you're a hottie. Pharaoh's going to want you. When he finds out we're married, he'll off me to get you. Let's just say you're my sister. Then we'll get our food. We'll fill our bellies. We'll get our food packed up, and we'll, we'll scram back to Canaan. Question, did you hear God in there anywhere? God is not mentioned. He's not cited. He's not referenced. He's not quoted, okay? He's not invoked. Abram is doing what he thinks is right. He's reverting to what has always worked in his life. I'm going to figure this out. Do we ever do that? Is that our default sometimes? The last thing we do is to seek the wisdom of God. We try to work on it ourselves. Uh, he believes ma- Abram believes in the macro, not the micro. I'm going to take care of This is my stuff. He thinks this is his area. God is the big stuff. I do the small stuff. No. No. Now, was God ever gonna let Abram starve to death in the famine? Of course not. That was never gonna happen. How do you know? He made him a promise. Through you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God is not gonna let some famine derail that. But look what happens. Your unbelief leads to self focus. Self focus in your notes leads to two things rationalization and sin. Rationalization and sin. Abram's telling a lie here. She's my sister. Why is he doing that? Well, he's rationalized it. Uh, And we can do that. We can rationalize sin. We can lie to ourselves about what is or isn't sin. Well, you know, technically, I'm not doing anything wrong. You know, have you ever done that? I think that's our bent. So the rationale for Abram is that Sarah, Sarai, rather, was in fact, and I don't know if you know this, but she was his half-sister. They had the same father. Terah was the father of Abram and of Sarai, but they did not have the same mother. Now some of you are going, ew. It wasn't that big a deal back then, all right? So they were half-siblings, okay? So technically, He's thinking, this isn't really a lie, and it'll spare my life. So it's worth it. It's justified. They're not going to see me as a threat and kill me to take her. But he's clearly portraying her as not being his wife. He said, well, that's a half-truth. Okay, but if something is a half-truth, what's the other half? It's a lie. So unbelief leads to self-focus. Self-focus leads to rationalization and sin. Watch this. It all backfires. Look at the next verse. Verse 14 when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Now, let me just stop right here because you might be wondering, you know, Pastor Scott, you talked about Abram and Sarai as being old, and uh, you know, uh, you know, they're geriatric. You said, "What, what, what, what is this?" Well, listen, they are old in terms of childbearing—that is for sure. But you got to remember a couple things. One, um, something that we consider to be old now at least from the outward appearance, may not have been the case back then. People lived to be well over 100 in those days, some into their multiple hundreds, okay? And so Abram is 75 when he leaves Haran. Sarai is 65. She's 10 years younger than him. So A, people in general probably looked more uh, supple and and, and, uh, uh, vibrant uh, at an elevated phase of life. But I would also add that Sarai was probably a beautiful woman uh, and had been her whole life. And so she, still at age 65, uh, possesses great natural beauty. And we see in verse 15, when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Uh Uh-oh. What are you going to do now, Abram? How are you going to get out of this? Your plan kind of blew up in your face. It sounded it sounded great. You're gonna preserve your own well-being, but now they've taken your wife, and now they, they they've moved her into this little, you know, uh, hottie squad that the pharaoh's got his little harem over there. What are you gonna do? How, you're gonna you're gonna explain to this guy who is basically a god to his people that you lied to him? How's that gonna go? Oh, yeah, your Majesty. You, <laughs> Funny story. You are gonna love this. We're married. You know? Is that gonna work? I don't think so. This this is a cringy moment right here. This guy is a patriarch. This is Father Abraham. And he's blown it. How bad a blunder is this? Well, imagine the possibilities. She's in the harem of the Pharaoh. What happens in a harem? I think you know what happens in a harem. And so this is a very serious situation. You say, you mean they're gonna, uh uh-huh. Well, that's terrible. Yeah, I know. You say, well, I don't remember these details from Sunday school. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Verse 16, and for for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. So this is what makes it worse. (laughs) Because of Sarai, Pharaoh, it says that he gave Abram sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So he's benefiting financially. This guy who was scared for his own skin lies about his wife to save his own hide, and now she's in the harem of the Pharaoh, and he's put her at risk while he's benefiting. He's basically pimped out his wife. That's what's happening here. Father Abraham, crazy. So unbelief leads to self-focus, which leads to rationalization and sin, and then we see. And this is what he needs right now. Like a lightning bolt out of the blue, in your notes, we need God's mercy. God's mercy. I want you to watch the grace of God. If God was not a merciful God, Abraham does something like this. If I'm God, I'm sending Michael down there to beat him upside the head. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because Abram is God's chosen, and he's reaping all these benefits from the Pharaoh. But meanwhile, inside the Pharaoh's palace, what's happening? Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. What kind of plagues? Well, we don't know. We don't know, but they are afflicted with something nasty. Um and was now at this point was sarai spared from being violated we don't know that either you can make the case that uh, logically that god would have spared her but we don't know but he does intervene because he keeps his word what is his word to abraham he told him he said those who bless you i will bless those who curse you i will curse meaning i'm going to protect you i'm going to protect you second 2 timothy 2:13 2, if we are faithless he remains faithful aren't you glad about that Oh, my goodness. So you may be here today, and you can relate to this text right here. You could say, you know what? I've had trouble with unbelief. I need God to help my unbelief. I have doubted that God could take care of me. I've gone off, and I've attempted to solve things by myself, and it's blown up in my face. And I'm dealing with the repercussions of that right now. I don't know you. I don't know your situation, but you do, and God does. But I want you to know something. You have not been abandoned. When you are faithless, he is faithful. We have a faithful God. Now, if we stop right there, you'd probably be happy as a clam to know, well, good, God takes care of us. God's a faithful God. God's a God of mercy. If I stop there, that's an incomplete progression. There's more we need to reap from this. Because good parents know this. When a child disobeys, when a child acts up, They've lied, they've cheated, they've disobeyed, whatever it is. If you don't correct that child, that will not be the end of their story. Your mercy will not be the end of their story. Down the road, there's an end to that story, and it's not mercy, it's heartache. And so, heartache follows those that don't receive correction. So what comes after God's mercy in your notes is God's discipline. God's discipline. Now, I'm a parent of four. I was uh, a child of four to my own parents. I believe in personally administered corporal punishment, as did my parents. What is that? That's when a child disobeys, does something that they know they're not supposed to do, rather than letting that behavior go unchecked and result in later on, an attitude and a behavior and a lifestyle that will turn into 20 years of heartache, a good mom, a good dad will take those 20 years and they will compress them into two or three swift, effective backstrokes. All right? And they will concentrate on the posterior. And that's the seed of learning, as it were. And momentary pain will be necessary to keep the child from permanent damage. Some people say, you believe in spanking, Pastor Scott? Yes, I do. But isn't that abuse? Uh, isn't that abuse? There's a Greek term for that response, hogwash. It's not abuse, okay? We are never to cause physical damage to our children or never to, to, uh, to uh, you know, do damage to them, to abuse them. Uh, but this is not abuse. This is discipline. Proverbs 23:13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, okay, what does it say? He will not die. He will not die. Okay? Now, I would not do it here or here or here or here. I'd do it right back here on the seat of learning. Their gluteus maximus can sustain, I assure you. Okay? Okay? Um, my children's souls are worth more to me than their hind parts. And so I I care about the future. I care about what kind of people they're going to be. And I have had to implement, you know, God's tool of correction, mainly with my sons. Mainly with my sons. Is this necessary for every child? No, I wouldn't say so. I've got a couple of girls where with them a stern stare reaps the same benefit as, uh, as spanking does with my boys. Okay, but God does this with us. You've received a spanking from God. I promise you. Hebrews twelve eleven for the moment of uh, or the for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those who have been trained by it. Some people say, "Well, can't you uh, can't you uh, you know correct them verbally?" Sometimes you can. But kids have a lot of earwax. How do you melt the earwax? You heat up their behind. (laughs) And this right here says, correction yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those who have been trained by it are those whose wax has run out their ears. you got to get their attention. God tells Abram, I'm going to let... I'm not going to let my promise to you dissolve, but I am going to let you deal with the repercussions of your actions. And I want you to watch what happens. The correction of Abram. There is some humiliation here. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh called to Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Now, how did he know that? I don't don't know. I don't know. Maybe Sarai was the only one in the palace that didn't get the plague. I don't know, but he has a revelation that this is a married woman, and she's married to that dude out there named Abram. He says, why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now, I want you to understand who is doing the rebuking here. This is a polytheistic, pagan, Hamite, an Egyptian. He worships false gods, and he is speaking a rebuke to God's anointed, to his chosen vessel, to the recipient of his covenant. Abraham is getting a dressing down. And we see in verse 19, it goes on, he says, now then here's your wife, take her and go. He says, get out of my sight. It's very humiliating. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Folks, that is A humiliating lesson right there. And now he's going to leave, and it's a long way back to Bethel, where they came from. Can you imagine that trip? Day after day, they're on the road, and he's with this wife that he'd basically thrown at the Pharaoh. That's a frosty ride right there. Man, what's going through Abram's mind the whole time? He is replaying his mistakes He's discredited God, he's discredited God's word, he's embarrassed himself, he's put his wife at risk. Some of the greatest people that you will come across, and by great, I don't mean famous, if you ask them some pivotal moments, some essential moments in their life, they will not describe to you their accomplishments and their triumphs. They will talk about their failures. They will talk about times when they landed on their face and God taught them something. And there are moments in my life that I could point to that did that very thing for me. I don't want to relive those moments, but I wouldn't trade them for anything. And I bet you've got those moments too. Maybe you're in one right now and you're like, I'd trade it. I would trade it. If you learned from it later, you would not trade it. You would not trade it. Because this text today is not one where we're going to learn how to avoid all failures. Okay? There's actually not a directive here today. I'm not teaching you something for you to go out and apply, specifically an action. My job today is simple. I just get to walk you through this text. I don't have to tell you, now you go out there and you fail. You're going to do that. I don't have to tell you to do that. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen when God knows you need to fail. And he knows that you need to learn something. Abram is embarrassed. Now, if we stopped right here, you'd say, okay, great, message received. We all see the importance of failure. I understand, I can receive that. Moses went through it, Peter went through it, Abraham, Joshua, Paul, all these guys. But if we stop with that right there, this is incomplete because the difference between the foolish and the great is how they respond to failure. Let me say that again. The difference between the foolish and the great is how they respond to failure. A fool is not someone who fails. You're not a fool because you fail. You're a fool if you don't learn from failure. One person will get molded by their failure, another person will return to their failure. How does Abram respond to his failure? Now we're into chapter 13. Look at verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had, and Lot, that's his nephew, with him, to the Negeb. And Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. Do you recall this? He comes into the land, he builds an altar right there. It says, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. How do you respond to failure? Look at what Abram does. He goes back to the start. He goes back to the beginning. He remembered who God called him to be. The identity that he received from God at the very start. And he, he prays. He calls upon the name of the Lord. Can you imagine what that prayer was like? God, I'm a weak man. I've disgraced you. Here you've called me to represent you in an ungodly land, and look what I've done. I've let you down, but I know something is true. You still love me. You have called me. You still care about me. And you're not done with me. Folks, I don't care what you've done, Christian. I don't care how you've screwed up. If you are born again, you are bought with a price. He's not done with you. You've messed up, but your life is not over. God has more for you. And so what are we to do in your notes? This is the last part of the progression. You return and learn. Return and learn. You want to become strong in the grace of God? You learn how to become strong when you learn how badly you need the grace of God. And that's where you get to apply it. Faith is not a spectator sport. It's not theoretical. You get to put it to use. And that means in times of failure. If you're reeling in personal failure, I want you to understand there is an enemy that wants you to wallow in that failure. He wants you to be completely made impotent, spiritually, effectively. He wants to remind you of your guilt, of your shortcomings, of the ways that you've screwed up. That's not what God wants. He wants you to take those memories. Does he want you to forget about your failures? No, no. I remember when I learned how to play tennis, and I'm not a great tennis player, but when I first started to play tennis, I played with my best friend who was good, and he taught me a few things, and so we began to play. And in the early days, I'd make a lot of mistakes. I mean, I'd come up too fast on the ball, and I'd, I'd, I didn't have room to swing. I looked like a T-Rex, you know? Or I'd hit the ball, and it'd go over the fence, or I'd hit it right into the net, and I'd get frustrated. Man, I'd throw my racket, and I'd stomp, and you know, I never cussed, but... Where I spit, the grass had turned brown, I'll tell you that. But every mistake that I made contributed to my improvement as a player. Because every time I was about to do it again, I was reminded of the last time. And it served a purpose. It developed habits in me. And if you are reeling in failure, God's design is for you to remember those failures and use them, put them to use. What did God tell the church at Ephesus? What did Christ tell Ephesus in the book of Revelation? In chapter two, he said, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember from where you have fallen. You kneel down at the altar to which God has called you like Abram and you say, God, help me not to do that again. Help me to learn from this. Help me to stay the course. I can't do it on my own power. That's acknowledging failure right there. And through that failure comes strength because in my weakness I am made strong is what Paul said. Now watch what happens. Abram finds himself in another faith-testing situation. There's a dispute between him and his nephew, Lot. We're going to learn more about Lot in the days to come. About whose, This dispute is about whose cattle could graze where. Look at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, Also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. He's got strife. Any of you deal with strife? This is a family member. He's got strife. So how has he learned? I want you to observe how Abram has learned from failure. Verse 8, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me? If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll get there. So Lot chose for himself... All the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east and then they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So Abram gives him his choice. Lot takes what he wants. He takes the best place, the more desirable land. But look what happens. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, he said, lift up your eyes. See if this sounds familiar. Look. From the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Hmm. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. What's he doing? He's repeating the covenant. He's repeating the promise. Verse 18 So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. You see, Abraham learned God will take care of me. I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to try to win every stupid little battle on my own ability because I think I can do it. I'm not going to impose my will. In, in life because it's just not fair if something doesn't shake out the way I want it to. No, I'm going to trust God because God has my best interest at heart. I know what he's called me to. I'm not going back to the mud hole. That's what pigs do. You can dress a pig up. You can spritz them with cologne. You can put a bow tie on them. You turn your back, they're back in the slop. We aren't to go back to the slop. We are to live in the identity that he has called us to. You know, after surgery, if there's internal bleeding, you know what a a doctor does? He can go back in there and he can fix that problem. How does he do that? He goes through the same incision that he'd made for your surgery. He'll go right back through there. But if he has to go back in there over and over and over and over, what, what happens? You get a scar there. So he'll do what he's got to do, but over time, there's a scar. We don't want to keep going back repeatedly. God is faithful, but if we keep going back to that to which we have not been called, we're going to develop a scar on our heart. God will take care of you. Here's some takeaways for us today, and that's number one. God will take care of you. You need to acknowledge that. I hope that is clear to you, that the God who saved you is big enough, but he's also small enough. He's not just the God of of your eternity. He's the God of your present. He's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of your relationships, of your well-being, the food on your table. He cares about the details. Second takeaway, unbelief will cause you to focus on yourself. And that begins a chain reaction. It's going to lead you down a path, and eventually that path will include rationalization and sin. The third takeaway, don't rely on... On obsolete resources. I hope you've learned about the dangers of that. The stuff that used to work for you, it doesn't work anymore. It's not gonna cut it. Uh, In fact, it never did cut it. You only thought it worked for you, it never worked for you. God's given you a new toolbox. It's called His power, His sustenance, His provision. When David was about to face Goliath, Saul tried to put his armor on David. David said, I can't fight in this, this isn't my armor. I cannot fight in another man's armor. Neither can you. Don't trust obsolete things. 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. You need to be who he's called you to be and walk in his power. And then finally, you got to remember one thing. The greatest failure is never knowing Christ. That is failure. For you as a non-believer today, if you're in here and you're hearing this message, And you hear the gospel, and the gospel is simply this, that we're all failures because of sin. But because God loved us, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who went to a cross for our sin, died in our place, rose from the dead. Whoever comes to him and believes on that and trusts the free gift of grace that he provided for salvation, we will be saved. If you hear that and you don't respond to that and you never respond to that, folks, that is a failure and that is the ultimate failure because you can't learn from that failure. You can only suffer. And you won't suffer for a moment. You'll suffer for an eternity because you've rejected God's only way. Would you bow with me right now? Heavenly Father, I just... uh, I just pray for anyone in this room right now who has never trusted in Jesus Christ. And as every head is bowed right now, every eye is closed, I want to extend an opportunity to those in this room who have never trusted Christ. Today is the day you need to make a change. You need to turn to Him. You need to turn from sin and from self. And turn to the one who wants to make you an everlasting prophet. Who wants to call you into a place of eternal provision. Where you can never be let down. You can never fail in such a way that it will doom you and damn you for eternity. But that salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, I would like to invite you to pray right now. And you can pray along with me. You can just repeat these words in your heart. It's not the words that are going to save you. It's the sentiment. It's the desire. It's the motivation of your heart. You're surrendering to the Lord Jesus. Pray this with me if you're wanting that for your life. Dear Father God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that all the old things that I trust in are not good enough. They're not going to work. But I know that Jesus died for me. And I am believing on that for my salvation. I am putting my trust in what you did for me. And I receive that as a gift. And I now commit my life to you because you do a better job running my life than I do. Will you be my Lord and Savior? In Jesus' name, keep your heads down for just a moment. If you prayed that prayer today and you have trusted Christ as your eternal Savior today for the very first time, I'm going to ask you to just slip your hand up right now. Is there anyone in this room that has trusted Christ this morning? Amen. Amen. Look up here. If you did pray that prayer today, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to come right down here. Our prayer team is going to be here at the front. And they are, they are looking forward to meeting you, praying with you, giving you some resources and some direction about where you go next. Because we want to come alongside you. We love you. The Lord loves you. And we want this to be your home where you can begin an exciting adventure.